0: Good morning. My name is Crystal Bauer, and this morning's scripture reading is found in Romans chapter 4, and if you'd like to follow along with today's scripture reading, now's the time to get out your Bible, or use the screen, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Romans 4, 1 through 12. When then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due." But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David always also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account." Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while well circumcised, but while well uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Good
1: morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm going to start my timer here. Uh, the church and the staff are going to great lengths to uh, make sure. I don't have too good of a time up here. Uh, last uh, service, the 9 o'clock service, I, was, uh, I went about uh, 39 minutes. So that's that's pretty good. Uh, So the schedule is 30. They're giving me until 35 minutes. And uh, so let's go. Um, Today, the title is When God Loves. And the basic idea I want us to think about today is that more than the quantity of God's love, which the scriptures say does not change at all. That he loves us the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he will not, cannot love us less. He is love, right? That's the question I often find myself asking though is, how much does God love me? Or how much do you love me? But here, Paul points out that the most important question you want to ask when it comes to love is not quantity, but when. When does God love? Love me. When does God love you? And his answer, uh, Paul's answer to us about God's love, is that he loved us before. And if he loved us before, then it guarantees love now. If he loved us then, how much more does he love us now? That's the question we want to try to uh, look at today. Uh, As a way of introduction, I want to invite you to remember what it's like to long for love. Now, I have talked with 17-year-olds who long for love, who dream of love, who fantasize about being known and knowing and loving and being loved, and uh, it's intense and it's very real. I've also spoken with seventy-something year olds who feel the same way they did when they were seventeen, and they still they still carry within themselves this longing for love, this longing to be accepted and cared for, this longing to be pursued. And uh, we don't always live in that. State or in that realm, but we often are reminded of those longings, and and they creep up on us, right? And so, as a way to help you get into that mode, uh, I want to read to you a journal entry from uh, 1995 that I wrote. So almost 20 years ago, I um, I, I put together, uh, compiled, uh, redacted a couple of uh, entries together. I am here again, God. It's much later in the day, and I don't feel improved very much. I have no idea what I was referring to. I saw Susie at the Veritas Forum for a few seconds. She was sitting in the back by herself. Uh, Susie is my wife, for those of you that don't know that. I, uh, I tapped her shoulders as I walked by. I had a new thought today. Maybe my longing for someone is really a mortal manifestation of my heart's cry for you the speaker quoted augustine god has formed us for himself and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him or something like that the restlessness of my heart is it for you god even my lusts and my fantasies are they just the fallen creatures longing for you if i have found what i am looking for in you why do i continue to search and if you are the answer why does my heart still ask questions I keep thinking about Susie. I cannot get her out of my mind. I try to, and I thought I had for a day, but she always comes back. I know that she is not right for me, but I keep liking her. (laughs) I like her hands. How can anyone's hands be so beautiful? I wish that I could hold them in mine. I want to know her. I want her to cast off any facade or restraint and just be her beautiful self with me. I want to experience her just as she is. I feel like she doesn't like me very much. What draws me, though? She stands out above all the other females that I have ever encountered. She is special to me. I cannot not like her as long as I am near her. I feel vulnerable, afraid of getting hurt. I know I have never loved anyone before. I am scared that I am falling in love with her. Love. And then about a year and a half later, uh, she wrote me this email. This is all while we're still in college. Um, She says, hey, Peter, I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you. Please know that I'm thinking about you and me and everything else just about every minute of the day. There really are so many things on my mind, and I have just seen God be so faithful to his promises. You have been so good to me. I am amazed by you. I know where you feel led. Please wait for me to be just as sure. I'll see you later, Susie. And then about a month later, she cut things off with me uh, and broke my heart. Now, Here's a question. Were my longings specifically and only for Susie or were they for something beyond Susie? Here's another way to ask that question and I think easier to come up with an answer. Have all my longings now been satisfied in Susie? Am I all that Susie has ever desired? Now that's a really easy way to answer. (laughs) And so we learned last week that our longings, the very existence of our longings, the, the reality of faith itself is evidence that there is another world. And God is at the center of that world. That if there wasn't another world, and if there wasn't a God who created us for love, we wouldn't have longings for love. You have to ask the question, where do these longings come from? And what are they for? And if, if it's not about Susie and it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about anyone else in your life, what is it for? What are they pointing to? And the answer that the Bible gives is that it's really for God. That you were made for God by God. And until you find your rest in Him, you will never ever find rest at all. That you will always be searching and pining. And sometimes you're busy and you're distracted and you forget But regularly and often you're reminded that you have a soul and that in this material finite finite world, there's eternity in your hearts. And the Bible says you make your choice. You look to some finite material creature. And you look for satisfaction in them. Go ahead. The Bible says I dare you. If that's the way you want to live, if that's the way you want to go at it, go ahead, be my guest. But you will be disappointed and you will come crawling back and say, what is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? Is there someone, anything, anyone out there? And the Bible says, yes, there is. And it's not your neighbor. It's not your spouse. It's not anybody. But it's God and God alone. And either you find your satisfaction in God or nowhere else. And that's, that's actually the practical challenge that we all have, isn't it? You can put your hope in finite things, in creatures, or you can put your hope in your creator. What will you do? I was uh, re- reading up again on this study that scientists did in the 1950s on rhesus monkeys. Um, so cute. And uh, they, did, they, they did this set of tests to determine uh, what love is. And this changed parenting philosophy all across uh, the country. There was a time decades ago when it was believed uh, to be bad for children if you show them affection. So you didn't say, I love you. At most, you were instructed by parenting instructors to maybe pat them on the head if they'd done a good thing. But you don't hug them. You don't tell them you love them. You don't pick them up out of nowhere and squeeze them and spin them around and lavish your love on. You don't do that because that's bad for kids. This is what they believed. This is what they taught. And then came the recess monkeys. And what they did was basically, to break it down, they had this wire frame of a mom. And some of you are nodding because you've you've heard this study before. And food. And then they had this, like, towel. And they asked the recess monkey babies to choose. Choose either a wireframe of a mom with, you know, basically not nurturing, but you get food, sustenance. Or you get this soft, cuddly thing that you can feel emotional comfort from. Right? Choose which one. And it was one or the other. You couldn't get both right and guess what the monkeys chose they chose the towel lots of monkeys chose to starve to death rather than to be nourished by a wireframe of a mom and some monkeys are smart enough to uh, go to the wireframe mom and then get the food and then run over to the towels and be comforted by them but the studies show that even at that level of existence love is greater than just material needs being met. And then parenting philosophies began to change. So Paul does two things here that I think are really important. He asks the question, what? And then he answers it by saying it's love. What? Love. And the second, he says, when? When? And the answer is before. So what, love, and then when, before. So if you look at verses 1 through 8, it establishes this universal desire for love in the human being. And Paul goes on to say that our desire for love is actually greater than our desire for control or power or entitlement. What shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now here's the part. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credit as, credited as as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works and this is Paul saying if you actually contributed to God loving you you would have some power over God you would be putting God in debt and he would owe you and you experience power and a sense of control and entitlement God you owe me I did this, therefore you have to do this. I put you in my debt. That's the way we experience control. Then we're entitled to something. Right? But God says, no, 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 no. Abraham did nothing to deserve God's love. See, if Abraham had contributed by doing any kind of work, then it would be due him. It would be his entitlement. But not in this case. Before Abraham did a single thing, God loved Abraham. God related to Abraham. God made a commitment to Abraham. God called Abraham his own. He took the stranger and brought him into the family and love of God. Love, by definition, is grace. It's something that we don't deserve, right? And uh, one way we get a clue into this is Paul uses the word blessing. You know what the word blessing means? It's a word, uh, in the Greek word, it just means happy. But it's not talking about just shallow, uh, sort of, I had a good day, I'm happy, or something good happened, I'm happy. But it's, I'm experiencing something that's deeply rewarding. And so I feel this sense of luck. Like, I didn't earn that. It's the experience that you have when you are given a gift. And even non-religious people will use this word to still mean that. Like, like the time that I was in a car accident and I should have died, and the paramedic came and said, You are blessed today. You should have died. Meaning, it's an indictment against my stupidity when I feel blessed. I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it, I didn't contribute to its coming my way at all, and yet here it is. I'm blessed, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate. Right? And this is what God Paul is saying here about Abraham. Abraham is experiencing the presence of God, the, the commitment of God in his life as a blessing. That's love. Um, I was reading uh, about this uh, hierarchy of needs. Some of you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Maslow says the most basic, the most basic, fundamental. Need that we have is to not die, like by physical safety and like water. And as soon as we're not going to physically die, guess what, guess what the very first thing is that we want, that we long for, that we search for. Guess? Love, belonging. Like if you're not gonna die. You want love. That's crazy how basic our love need is. And here Paul says that things like boasting and wages and due is less than our desire and need for favor and faith and credit, being forgiven, being covered, and being blessed. We are loved. Okay, now, the question is, when? How do we know? How can we trust this love? This is a logical question of love. If somebody says, I love you, you have to ask, how do I know you love me? You don't know me. What if, what if, um, I, uh, going back to Susie, um, you know, I know some of you are new, and uh, I've been preaching here for about a year. And uh, those of you who have been here know uh, the story a little bit, but the basic story is that uh, Susie was madly in love with me, and she pursued me for four years, and uh, I rejected her, kept her at arm's length. I was more interested in things like prayer and God, and um, <clears throat> or the opposite of that. I forget the details now. But one of my fears was that the relationship will always be uneven, that Uh, I will always pursue her or want more, and she will always be inching away from me, and I'll always be inching towards her, and we're going to just chase each other around the dining table forever. (laughs) You know, that's just the picture of my great fear. And then uh, uh, I I couldn't imagine the tables ever flipping on that, you know, but uh, it has flipped and, uh, you know, now Susie is always wanting to know if I love her, do I miss her, do I, th- I think about her, and just, I would say every day, you know, she wants to know if I love her, and, uh, you know, sometimes I love her so much I tell her, that's the joke. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, there was a season in our marriage when uh, she would, she just asked me a series of very interesting questions. And the questions kind of went something like this. Uh, will you love me if? And, uh, you know, she would fill in the blank. And uh, it would be something like, will you love me if I was disfigured? Will you love me if I gain weight? Will you love me if I become paralyzed from the waist down? Will you love me if I become paralyzed from the neck down? Uh, Will you love me if I don't love you anymore? These are some deep questions. And uh, I have these questions too. What are the limits of someone's love for me? How can I know that somebody's love is trustworthy? I'm really asking the question how can I know it's love? How can I know that I don't have to be the sustainer of somebody's commitment and affection towards me? How can I know Susie will always hold out for me, that she will always believe in me, and she will always care? How can you know? And the basic way to answer that question, Paul says, is to ask the question, when did God love you? Did God love you after you were dolled up? Did God love you because you first loved him? Did God love you because you were working hard to reconcile yourself to him? Did God love you because you wanted to worship him? You wanted to credit him? You wanted to honor him? When did God love you? And the second half of the passage, verses 9 through 12, answers this question. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? This is the question. When did God love And Paul says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision, to those who not only are only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That's a long sentence. But Paul is making the point. Just ask the question. Did God reconcile Abraham to himself while he was already a good person? Did Abraham earn or deserve God's love and commitment anyway whatsoever? And the answer is no. Abraham was an enemy of God. And God pursued Abraham, and God declared him righteous, meaning God made a connection to Abraham and committed himself to Abraham, even at the expense of his own life, while Abraham had done nothing. And the sign of circumcision is to remind Abraham that he is already loved. And that the children of Abraham, Paul goes on to say, that is all of us are loved just as Abraham is loved before. You ask the question, what are the limits of God's love? If I get a flat tire, if my life isn't going my way, if there's sickness in my life or in my children's life, There are bad things happening. Is that a sign that God doesn't love me? And God says, no, you already have a sign. And that sign exists before you were anything. You were created bearing that sign. How do I know that sign can be trusted? Because Jesus was cut off from God. He was abused and tortured, and he died in your place. And the cross for the Christian becomes the ultimate sign that God loved us before. God is trustworthy and his love is reliable because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, you can trust now, no matter how good of a day you're having, how good of a decade you're having. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your own assessment of yourself and your life is. God's love cannot change because he loved you before and guaranteed it with the sign of circumcision, which was a sign of the sign to come that is the death of Jesus Christ. That's the whole Christian deal. That you are loved And the way you know that and the way you experience that is through Jesus. And so a couple of theology uh, emerges here. The first is what I would call a theology of acceptance. If you are accepted for any reason, like you look okay, or you're a nice person, or you're a good person, or you're not that bad of a person, whatever basis you present before others and God in order for you to be accepted, then acceptance is already over because they're not accepting you, they're accepting some basis that you're putting forward. And so acceptance, by definition, means there is no basis that you're offering for that acceptance other than their own desire and commitment to accept you. This is why lovers ask these ridiculous if questions. If I had no basis to be loved, if I wasn't lovable at all, will you still love me? And the scripture says you are loved not because you're lovable. You're not contributing to the equation. God loves you because He is loving. He accepts you just as you are first. And once you are accepted, then you feel safe enough to begin to allow your true self to come out. Right? And then, as your true self comes out, then change is actually possible. Because you're allowing light to be shed on the things that need changing. As long as you have to do something or be something to be accepted, you can never change. Because the very things that need changing can't come out. And that's the conundrum with relating to human beings is we, whether we explicitly say it or not, what we're saying is, I will accept you if you change in some way. And we fear emotionally, we think if we accept them just as they are, then they're never going to change. They're going to get the wrong message. If Susie accepts me just as I am, then Peter's just going to stay that way. He's going to think it's okay. So it requires a faith step to accept someone just as they are. And so if you want somebody to change, here's the crazy thing. You have to accept them before they change. Our instinct is to do the very opposite, isn't it? We hold out. We dangle the carrot of love. Say, I will love you, but you got to first. And God says, no, 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 no. You first love. And then, so acceptance is the door through which transformation happens. It's the only door through which transformation happens. Change can happen in no other way. Hebrew says, boldly approach, enter the throne of grace. Come just as you are. And there, once you're already in my presence, there you will find mercy and grace to help you in time of trouble. Second theology a piece of theology that emerges, is the theology of grace. That love has to be unconditional. There can't be any conditions that we meet for it. For love that is conditional lacks power. If you love someone because they meet certain conditions for you, because they are lovable in some way, shape, or form, then that love has no power in their life. But the love that is scariest, the love that is transformative, the love that is able to reach deep into somebody's heart, is a love that has no conditions. And on earth, that's, this kind of love feels really alien. It's not something we encounter on a regular basis. Even my mom's love, I'm her son. I had to meet that condition. Better human beings have been unloved by her because they're not her sons. But God loved me when I was still an enemy of God. That changes everything. Now that's got me all puzzled and confused about the nature of God, about the character. What, why in the world does he love me? Why did he love me before? And we come to see That this kind of love is divine. It's not of human origin. And it's demonstrated, acted out perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. We'll get to that in Romans 5. So, um, three application points, okay? And we'll stay under um, 35 minutes. Just, just, just to give credit where credit is due. I left out two stories from the first service cuz I went I went 39 minutes and one point sub point here. I'm just I'm going to be disciplined cut it out. Okay. Um, first application point. Would you release others from your tyrannical love needs? The weight of love you're asking them to hold is crushing them. Nobody can love you the way you were meant to be loved. Nobody can do it. Only God and God alone can lift that love for you. He is eternal and your longings are eternal and nothing material can satisfy you. Think about people in your life that you want love from. And in faith, release them. Let them go. And in prayer, say, God, I want so much for this person to be like this and to treat me this way, and why won't they? And let them go. Maintain that vacuum and allow God to fill it. From whom do you expect perfect and ideal love? That's the first application point. Second application point is accept God's acceptance of other people. That's related to the first thing. This is one of the most transformative things that I've experienced in my marriage uh, is Susie's acceptance of God's acceptance of me. See, there is no basis for God's acceptance of me. He accepts me just as I am. Messiness and issues and damage and gifts and curses, everything, the whole package. He accepts me just as I am. And if God has accepted me, who are you to say, I don't accept Peter? We don't have that say over each other's lives. Our job is to accept the fact that our creator has accepted us. What are we going to do? It doesn't matter if you reject me. You're just a fellow servant like me. God, our master, has accepted me. And he has accepted you. And God only knows why. I don't know why. I can't imagine how he can accept you just as you are. But he has. Third application point. I heard a really powerful TED talk this week uh, given by a Dr. Brown Goldman. And he's a physician. And he talks about uh, the culture of infallibility in the medical profession, especially in the United States, where you're not allowed to admit to the mistakes that you've made. And you're never actually even allowed to ever talk about it. And so doctors carry this burden inside of them. And so he's sort of uh, kind of making his medical career a, a peripheral thing. And he's embraced radio shows and other things to try and cultivate a culture where doctors are allowed to say, I made a mistake. And to be able to say the two words that doctors need to say so much which is, I'm sorry. And I think I thought about that this week, about all of the heresy I have preached over the years and all of the horrible counseling advice I've given, not fully understanding the impact my words might have on somebody. I'm just up here being me, and yet I'm just sending you know, weird peace theology just out there, just hanging out there. And I was in particular thinking about this one guy that I messed up. Like, I just messed up his life in some profound ways because I told him stuff that just was dumb. But he took it to heart because I'm a pastor. And I remember years later when I visited that church, he and I had to talk because he was so angry with me. It has, My advice has sent life in a totally bad direction. That's a mistake I made. I still think about that regularly. So as a third application point, would you share a mistake that you've made knowing you are loved, mistakes and all, knowing that you are accepted just as you are? Would you come into the light and share with somebody a a point, a story of shame or embarrassment that you carry with you? And as you do that, you're letting your true self shine. And then you begin to experience God's love because you're like, oh, God still loves me. And you still love me. The love of God is why we have been created. And he loved us then. And surely he loves us now. Would you pray with me? God, you love us and uh, we know this on a deep level that we long for this love and this love only. We are surrounded by uh, things that promise love, things that look like love, but ultimately we learn again and again that you alone can satisfy for we have been made for you. God, would you save us from this hunger and this longing that we carry with us and that we put over other people. Allow us to experience your perfect love. God, we love you because you have first loved us and we give our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.